PTJ podcasts are made possible by the American Physical Therapy Association. Physical therapists diagnose and treat people of all ages with all types of health conditions to help keep them moving and functioning in daily life. Welcome to PTJ's The Bottom Line for September 2009. I'm Donovan Stutel along with Dave Corboisier. Bottom Lines translate the findings of selected research articles for clinical practice. Bottom Lines are not intended to substitute for a critical reading of the original articles. The Bottom Lines for the September 2009 issue of PTJ were written by Dr. Eric K. Robertson, Assistant Professor in the Department of Physical Therapy at Texas State University in San Marcos, Texas. Our first bottom line summarizes impact of physical therapist-directed exercise counseling combined with fitness center-based exercise training on muscular strength and exercise capacity in people with type 2 diabetes, a randomized clinical trial, by Dr. J. David Taylor, Dr. James Fletcher, and Jakisa Tiarks. First, what problems did the researchers set out to study, and why? Exercise, along with medical nutrition therapy and pharmacological interventions, is an important component in the clinical management of type 2 diabetes. Determining the best method of providing exercise instruction is clinically relevant to this population. However, there currently are no studies investigating the impact of physical therapist-directed exercise counseling on exercise capacity and muscle strength in people with type 2 diabetes. Furthermore, many insurance programs do not reimburse for physical therapist-directed exercise counseling programs. With these factors in mind, the researchers set out to compare the effect of physical therapist-directed exercise counseling combined with fitness center-based exercise training to the effect of physical therapist-supervised exercise training on muscle strength and exercise capacity in people with type 2 diabetes. Who participated in this study? 24 adult subjects with type 2 diabetes participated in this study. The subjects met the American Diabetes Association diagnostic criteria for type 2 diabetes and had no medical conditions in which exercise was contraindicated. Individuals were excluded from this study if their fasting plasma glucose levels were greater than 250 mg per deciliter, that is, uncontrolled diabetes. What new information does this study offer? The results of this trial suggest that physical therapist-directed exercise counseling combined with fitness center-based exercise training can improve muscle strength and exercise capacity similar to a supervised laboratory-based exercise program. What new information does this study offer for patients? The results from this study support exercise counseling by a physical therapist combined with exercise at a fitness center as an effective means of improving strength and exercise capacity for people with type 2 diabetes. Providing exercise instruction in this way may be more cost-effective and offer improved access for patients compared to supervised exercise programs as exercise is included in the clinical management of type 2 diabetes. How did the researchers go about the study? 24 participants with type 2 diabetes were randomly assigned to either receive exercise counseling and fitness center-based exercise training or receive a supervised laboratory-based exercise training intervention. Strength training consisted of leg presses, chest presses, and rows. Aerobic training consisted of running or jogging on a treadmill. Physical therapists provided exercise instruction and follow-up phone calls for the exercise counseling group. 
The researchers controlled for overall exercise dosage between both groups. Outcome measures were 1. One repetition maximum strength assessments for the chest press, row, and leg press, and 2. Duration on a graded exercise capacity test following two months of intervention. How might these results be applied to physical therapist practice? Physical therapists should consider providing exercise counseling combined with fitness center-based exercise as a form of clinical management for people with type 2 diabetes. The study also suggests that careful dosing of exercise programs is more important than the manner in which the exercise is provided. What are the limitations of the study, and what further research is needed? This study did not blind subjects, therapists, or data recorders to group allocation, and the sample size was small. These two factors limit the ability to generalize these results. A larger, multicenter randomized clinical trial with longer outcome data points should be performed to strengthen the external validity of these results. Our next bottom line summarizes adhesive capsulitis, establishing consensus on clinical identifiers for stage 1 using the Delphi technique, by Sarah Walmsley, Dr. Darren Rivette, and Peter Osmotherly. What problems did the researchers set out to study, and why? Adhesive capsulitis is a common shoulder disorder, yet it is difficult to diagnose, and there currently is no diagnostic gold standard for this disorder. The researchers set out to investigate whether a consensus exists among experts about the diagnosis of stage 1 adhesive capsulitis of the shoulder. Who participated in this study? The researchers queried a group of 70 experts from Australia and New Zealand involved in the diagnosis and treatment of adhesive capsulitis. What new information does this study offer? The information from this group was clustered into two discrete domains, pain and Movement. For pain, the clinical identifiers were a strong component of night pain, pain with rapid or unguarded movement, discomfort lying on the affected shoulder, and pain that was easily aggravated by movement. For movement, the clinical identifier was a global loss of active and passive range of movement with pain at end range in all directions. The onset of the disorder was at 35 years of age or older. What new information does this study offer for patients? This study provides information about the consensus among a group of experts which may help identify stage 1 adhesive capsulitis of the shoulder, also known as frozen shoulder. This information is important because no gold standard currently exists to identify this disorder, and early detection of adhesive capsulitis may improve patient outcomes. How did the researchers go about this study? The researchers used a correspondence-based modified Delphi technique in which the group of experts answered three rounds of questions which could allow a consensus to be developed. How might the results be applied to physical therapist practice? The results from this study provide a framework for further analysis of the diagnostic criteria for adhesive capsulitis of the shoulder. Additionally, the results may inform clinicians of specific clinical identifiers that may assist in the diagnostic process for early-stage adhesive capsulitis. What are the limitations of the study, and what further research is needed? This study only examined the opinions of experts from one geographic region 
and these expert opinions may not have been inclusive of all opinions. This work represents the first step in the process of identification of potential diagnostic criteria for adhesive capsulitis of the shoulder. Our next bottom line summarizes rehabilitation after hallux valgus surgery, importance of physical therapy to restore weight-bearing of the first ray during the stance phase. By Reinhard Schuh, Dr. Stefan Hofstetter, Dr. Samuel Adams Jr., Florian Pickler, Dr. Karl Heinz Christen, and Dr. Hans-Jörg Trinka. What problems did the researchers set out to study, and why? Previous research has demonstrated that normal physiological gait patterns are not restored after hallux valgus surgery. The authors set out to illustrate changes in plantar pressure distribution during the stance phase of gait in individuals who underwent hallux valgus surgery and received a multimodal rehabilitation program. Who participated in this study? 30 patients with mild to moderate hallux valgus who received surgical repair, either the Austin or SCARF procedure, were included in this study. The subjects were required to be free of lower extremity or spinal problems that could influence gait patterns. What new information does this study offer? A multimodal rehabilitation program consisting of manual therapy, therapeutic exercise, and gait training may lead to improved function and weight-bearing of the first ray following hallux valgus surgery. What new information does this study offer for patients? Outcomes after hallux valgus surgery are good overall, but research has demonstrated that pressure through the inside of the foot and great toe remain reduced following this procedure. This study described a group of patients who had improved gait patterns following a rehabilitation program after hallux valgus surgery. This supports the notion that rehabilitation programs after hallux valgus surgery can further improve outcomes for patients. How did the researchers go about this study? The researchers used a prospective descriptive study design. At four weeks post-surgery, the subjects received a multimodal rehabilitation program once per week for four to six weeks. The program included gait training, range of motion training, strength training, and joint mobilization. Plantar pressures were collected preoperatively and at four weeks, eight weeks, and six months postoperatively. Range of motion of the first metatarsophalangeal joint and measures of function also were recorded. How might the results be applied to physical therapist practice? The information in this study provides preliminary evidence in support of routine rehabilitation following hallux valgus surgery to normalize gait and improve function that otherwise may not return on its own. Physical therapists can use the program described in this study as a guide for their own clinical decision-making. What are the limitations of this study, and what further research is needed? There was no control group in this study, and gait speeds were not recorded during data analysis. Future research should use experimental designs to determine if there is a beneficial effect of a multimodal rehabilitation program on the restoration of physiologic plantar pressure patterns. Our next bottom line summarizes clinical interpretation of a lower extremity functional scale-derived computerized adaptive test by Dr. Ying-Chi Wang, 
Dr. Dennis Hart, Professor Paul Stratford, and Jerome Meduski. What problems did the researchers set out to study, and why? The researchers set out to describe meaningful interpretations of functional status outcome measures when using a computerized adaptive test developed from the lower extremity functional scale. Computerized adaptive tests are increasingly being used as clinical outcome measures for patient-reported outcomes. However, the developers of these tests face a challenge in correlating functional scores with clinically meaningful information. Who participated in this study? The data from this study were collected from a cohort of more than 8,700 individuals who had hip impairments and were receiving physical therapy from 257 outpatient clinics in the United States between January 2005 and June 2007. The data were collected via the Focus on Therapeutic Outcomes, Inc. photo database. What new information does this study offer? This study determined that functional status changes of seven units or more represented statistically reliable change, and that functional status changes of six units or more represented the minimal clinically important improvement. Additionally, participants were categorized into five hierarchical levels using functional change scores. What new information does this study offer for patients? This study attempted to interpret a patient-reported outcome score in clinically meaningful terms. This information may make it easier for clinics to collect patient-reported outcomes as part of their daily practice. This will ultimately improve the clinician's knowledge of patients' perceptions of their own health and better track patient progress. How did the researchers go about this study? The researchers used four main approaches to interpret the outcome data clinically. One, the standard error of the estimate was used to determine 90% confidence intervals. Two, percentile ranks were applied for functional status scores. Three, thresholds were determined for functional status changes for clinically important and statistically reliable change. And four, a functional staging method was used. How might the results be applied to physical therapist practice? The information provided in this study can help clinicians and researchers interpret data from a body-part-specific computerized adaptive test developed from the lower-extremity functional scale. This information may encourage the use of this type of patient-reported outcome in physical therapist practice. What are the limitations of the study, and what further research is needed? These researchers performed a secondary analysis of data on people with similar diagnoses as collected from a proprietary database management company. Therefore, it may not be possible to generalize this information to non-participating clinics. Further research should be performed to validate the functional staging method developed in this analysis. Our final bottom line summarizes development of a self-report measure of fearful activities for patients with low back pain, the Fear of Daily Activities Questionnaire, by Dr. Stephen George, Carolina Valencia, Giorgio Zeppieri, Jr., and Dr. Michael Robinson. What problems did the researchers set out to study, and why? Evidence from prospective trials supports the use of the fear avoidance model of musculoskeletal pain to explain the development and maintenance of chronic low back pain. Although validated questionnaires exist that assess an individual's general attitude and beliefs related to the fear avoidance model, 
these tools do not address specific daily activities, and the utility of these tools is limited when attempting to develop interventions. The researchers set out to assess the psychometric properties of a novel self-report measure for fear of activities for patients with low back pain. Who participated in this study? Two cohorts of individuals from outpatient clinics affiliated with the University of Florida who had acute, subacute, or chronic low back pain participated in the study. The reliability cohort consisted of 50 individuals with chronic low back pain between 15 and 60 years of age. The validity cohort consisted of 108 individuals between 15 and 60 years of age with acute or subacute low back pain with or without radiating symptoms. What new information does this study offer? The Fear of Daily Activities Questionnaire, or FDAQ, is a 12-item self-report measure and is a potentially viable measure to quantify fear associated with specific activities. Graded on a scale of 1 to 100, this tool might be appropriate for developing graded exposure interventions and measuring changes in fear levels throughout an episode of care. This tool, however, is not indicated as a screening tool because baseline values did not explain variability in disability and physical impairment outcomes. What new information does this study offer for patients? It is important to assess fear related to low back pain to help manage and prevent chronic low back pain. Existing tools assess a patient's general fear related to their pain The FDAQ will allow clinicians to develop specific interventions because it provides reliable and valid information about specific daily activities that a patient may be fearful about. How did the researchers go about this study? Both cohorts completed the following measures at baseline. A numeric rating scale used to measure pain. Oswestry Disability Questionnaire used to measure disability. The physical impairment scale, used to measure physical impairment. The fear avoidance beliefs questionnaire, used to measure fear avoidance. And the pain catastrophizing scale, used to measure pain catastrophizing. The reliability cohort completed the FDAQ at examination, then completed a second FDAQ 48 hours later. The validity cohort completed an FDAQ at baseline and then received four weeks of physical therapy intervention, after which time all measures were readministered. Data analysis to determine the psychometric properties of the FDAQ was performed. How might these results be applied to physical therapist practice? Use of the FDAQ can be a way to use patient input to develop interventions related to fear about specific activities. A graded exposure approach to patients with high fear levels can have a positive impact on treatment. The FDAQ can be used to monitor changes in fear levels throughout an episode of care when used in conjunction with other tools, such as the Fear Avoidance Beliefs Questionnaire, which can help identify those individuals with a high fear avoidance. What are the limitations of the study and what further research is needed? One limitation of this study was the fact that the cohorts consisted primarily of individuals with moderate disability levels, and so the utility of this tool should be examined with respect to other levels of disability. Additionally, open-ended questions that were part of the FDAQ tool were not included in the analysis. The reason underlying a patient's report of fear was not considered in the scope of this article, but this may be clinically relevant.
Future research should continue to investigate the utility of the Fear of Daily Activities questionnaire in other populations of patients with low back pain. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of Science Audio, online at www.scienceaudio.net. We always appreciate your feedback. You can email ptj at scienceaudio.net or leave a voicemail at 626 593 7825